Boom, what up? Hello, bonjour, and hola, real leaders. This is Kevin Edwards, your host here, and I am so excited. You're tuning in to one of our amazing experiences. What you're about to hear is going to be fresh, real, and loaded with inspiration, guaranteed to support your impact journey. So sit back, enjoy the listen, folks share a review afterward, and always keep it real. In five, four, three, two, and one. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and rejoining us today here on the Real Leaders Podcast, we have the one and only Rachel Stern, the Chief Strategy Officer at Now Streamline Software. Rachel, thanks for coming back on the show today. Um, amazing. Round two. Thanks for having me. I know. I know. It's uh, so nice. You, you got to do it twice. Um, <laughs> so so Streamline, uh, interesting product, interesting focus. I think what might be maybe most helpful for those listening out there is just like, hey, this is a, this is a great example of someone finding their niche, finding their niche, starting narrow, and then going wide. So if you would, Rachel, maybe just fill our audience in on the backstory of Streamline and uh, maybe the enlarged problem you're tackling. Yeah, thanks. So um, as you know well, Kevin, I just left a decade of venture capital investing really focused on the GovTech challenge, which is like, how do we digitize services? How do we make our services more accessible to those who really need it? How do we transform paper processes and manual processes and in-person processes? Um, and I had really historically been focused on state government challenges, usually on the agency level or the regulatory level, um, and to a certain extent, cities and states who are sort of what I consider the tip of the spear on innovation, could move very quickly, could sort of incubate on a smaller scale, but really try a lot of things out. We're seeing that with smart cities and IoT. Um, but what I didn't realize is there is another level of government. <laughs> After 10 years of doing this, um, I was just learning about what special districts are. And I think most of us have never given much thought to special districts. Those of us who own our houses are usually paying into some. They're funded by property taxes. Um, they usually provide one or more singular services. And they can be things like libraries and cemeteries and mosquito abatement and sanitary districts and water utilities and, and all of these things that we rely on and sort of consider part of our city or county services, but are often these sort of very hyper-localized service providers. And they supersede city and county boundaries um, and really are just funded by uh, one geographic area's property taxes. And I had never heard of these districts before I talked to Mac Clements, who's the CEO of Streamline. And Mac has a long history, almost 20 years, of building sort of digital tools for government. Um, that's websites, it's compliance tools, it's overlaying regulatory requirements with websites and, and tools online. Um, and he had just spun out Streamline from his last business to really focus on getting special districts online and compliant and giving them the tools they needed to communicate with all of their constituents. So when I came to him, it was um, not as, as someone coming looking for a job, but it evolved that direction because I was so excited by, A, learning about a form of government that I hadn't spent much time on, 
Um, but B, this idea that there's a corner of the market that's really been untapped by most GovTech providers. Um, and that we can be providing these, sometimes it's two people running these things, like these super hyper-localized services, giving them websites, compliance tools, you know, posting tools, calendaring tools, payment tools, that otherwise they either would have to build themselves, contract out across multiple vendors, or, you know, worst case scenario, not have it all. So it's, it's been a really exciting, a really exciting few months. And so if I'm hearing you right, maybe just to summarize that, it is almost like a, a white labeled website platform for special district governments to comply with today's regulations and in order to reach more people in their cities who may be deaf or blind or um, you know, just uh, maybe the website, as you mentioned, there's two people operating it and they're not the most uh, efficient website developers. So is that kind of the the, the idea here? We're selling uh, this in terms of a, a website, white labeled service to these special districts. Yeah, so so your focus on ADA is is a really important element about this. You know, the federal government regulates all states, but really all digital services, and they have to be ADA compliant. And that can be really complicated because really basic things like, for example, Google Maps, you embed them into your website, they're not automatically compliant. So these districts were who were willing to have digital tools and be online and interact with constituents on their website were also at risk of being sued by those same constituents for not, for not meeting compliance. And ADA is certainly a big one, right? That's one that leaves them particularly vulnerable. But 47 states require that uh, governments at every level post their agendas and their minutes after meetings. So that's another type of regulatory requirement. Now, they don't all require it being posted online, but that sort of top-down pressure for even these hyper-localized hyper levels of government mean that they don't always have the tools to comply. So it's meetings and agendas, it's annual budget filings, it's FOIA requests, the Freedom of Information Act request, where we as constituents have the right to request information from any level of government. They just didn't have the tools to do this themselves necessarily. And Streamline has really packaged that offering, allowed them to stay compliant with every level of regulation, but also provided additional tools that help them do their day-to-day -day jobs. Got it. That, that makes a lot of sense. And and now I'm just like, I'm curious more about now that we've got kind of the model addressed about the people in the organization actually running this thing. I mean, if you could maybe tell me a little bit more about where you think you see the impact showing up in, in your culture. Is it people like you getting inspired by the vision and recruitment? Is it retention, productivity? What, what Maybe tell me where the impact is in the culture. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty incredible team. And I would say trends on the younger side, which is really inspiring for me to see sort of this next generation interested in civic tech and gov tech. Um, there are a lot of places these young people could work that are B2B SaaS or B2C SaaS. Um, and they're choosing to work at a place that has sort of this double bottom line goal orientation, which is not only to provide incredible services to companies, and but also build a business. And so I have just been totally blown away by the team's commitment to help special districts at every level of this journey, right? It's the, it's the outreach. We have a team who cold calls these districts um, from those who sort of give the demo of the tools and hear real-time feedback about what these districts are looking for and what they need and what's challenging and what's easy and what are they hoping to build and then all the way through our sort of customer support who 
um, every time we talk to a customer is like, oh my God, it's the best customer support I've ever seen, right? They're, they're going above and beyond. They're taking time to sort of integrate tools that I need. And you guys built this very specific thing that I asked for six weeks ago. It's, it's really responsive. And I think that that's a pretty magical thing, particularly with GovTech, this idea to respond not only to the end user, which is the constituent, someone who wants to see when their Parks and Rec has scheduled the yoga classes over the month, but really the buyer and the daily user who are these people managing special districts and committing their lives to making sure that these um, property taxes are not put to waste and, and those services are actually being provided. So that is really evident every day in our organization um, and the young people who are committed to you know, making local government better. Well said, and, and and now as the chief strategy officer, um, like with your background in VC and GovTech funds, uh, I think what might also be helpful is like for founders and CEOs thinking about raising capital, like what are investors looking for when they're looking, obviously in a return, but like what are they looking for in a slide deck, in your presence, in your pitch? Like how are you prepping uh, to raise capital for for this organization to scale its efforts? So GovSec occupies this really unusual, I mean, I just keep picking these like smaller and smaller corners of the universe and hoping that the rest of the market catches up at a so certain point. Good entrepreneurs do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I really do think there has been an evolution towards traditional financial firms being interested in GovTech. Um, I, I think that's for a couple of reasons. One, because there have been some pretty significant growth stories since GovTech Real GovTex is old as time. I, I should start by saying that. Customized, huge servers, you know, big million dollar multi-year projects, that's existed for a long time. But this idea of um, enterprise software that can plug and play into a variety of systems, be implemented quickly, and provide for a better constituent experience, that I would say has evolved really in the last decade. And to Amazon, to Amazon's total credit. Hey, Jeff Bezos, sponsor me. Um, <laughs> they really created a cloud market for government that didn't exist before. That's enabled a large amount of these companies to plug and play. And so GovTech's been really interesting. And I would say in the pandemic, traditional sort of financial firms were seeing interest in GovTech because all of a sudden there was a ton of federal money flowing through pretty much every level of government. Um, as far as I could tell, like pretty unimpeded. Um, but even beyond that, as there have been these whispers of recessions and we have seen these enormous valuations that came out of the pandemic often decrease, um, there's been a real appetite for something that feels stable. And there's been a real appetite for something that's sticky and maybe isn't going to be unicorn status, but is going to grow at a predictable rate with a customer who frankly, once they join, usually don't leave. The switching costs for government, for things, even like websites, is, is pretty high. Um, and if they like it, they stay with it. And so there's been a shift in appetite. I think that um, we have been having some conversations with investors. And what I've seen is a couple of things. One is I'm really pleasantly surprised at how many people are interested in exploring GovTech. I think that this is a period of time where it's hard for funds to switch theses. They've got sort of nervous LPs, 
Um, again, there's been a fair amount of down rounds, post-pandemic wild valuations. And so what I have found is that it's been hard for, while, while a lot of firms are interested in exploring these conversations, unless they've done GovTech before, it's not usually a reality that they're going to go to their LPs and be like, surprise, we're getting into a new vertical. Um, everyone's trying to minimize surprises right now after being surprised a lot in the last couple of years. So the, the companies that have invested in GovTech and see the value are still interested in expanding their portfolios. The companies that are interested in GovTech but haven't done it before, I think are probably you know, two to five years out from really being in a place where they can go to their LPs and experiment again. Um, so it's a funky fundraising environment. And I would say companies that are looking for investment partners should always be asking, you know, where are they in their fund allocation cycle? Because if they're towards the end, they're usually a little bit choosier, right? If they have one or two companies that they've got to invest in before they close the fund and start raising the next, that's a harder environment than if they're at sort of the beginning of their fund and they need to get a lot of capital out quickly. And then in parallel, um, be asking about their experience in GovTech. Interesting insights there. And and I don't know why, but what kind of ruminated my brain was just like, who who is the poster child in GovTech? Is it like TurboTax? Like, hey, here's a great example of someone who like, you know, private sector helping out the government. What that relationship is incredible. How did they get that? Is that like, like who is the poster child and, and maybe where are you trying to go in terms of your moat uh for for this organization? Yeah. So I think um no shade at TurboTax, but I'm not sure they're the poster child, but I love them. TurboTax don't hate me. Um, no, I, I really, I think that historically it's been really large players like Deloitte um, at, who have built a lot of sort of custom or, or IBM who have built a lot of custom software for governments. Sure. I think in this next generation of sort of cloud-based enterprise SaaS, so software as a service, um, one of the very early investments I had the opportunity to make, and, and it's an investment that has paid off in spades is with Pay It out of Kansas City, which is a mobile app. It's a digital wallet, really. But but the original idea was, what if we never had to go to the DMV again? What if we could just navigate paying for our tags or our license plates or registration um, on our phone the way we do transactions with pretty much every other thing we transact with? And they have grown significantly since started working with them in, I think, 2013, 2014. It's been a long time. Um, and, and really have expanded out from the DMV into a bunch of other payment options. But I think one of the things that they've done that's really smart is payments are ubiquitous. You're not trying to replace an existing system. People are still going to have to go to the DMV for various things. And if they want to, they can still go in person. But giving people the optionality to navigate services and systems on a tool that they're already using and doesn't, for example, require someone who's working min hourly minimum wage to take the day off to go renew their license plates. Like that's the sort of thinking that I think this next generation of GovTech is really focused on. It makes it easier for the collecting agency because all of that stuff is flowing in. It's not coming in as like a check <laughs> or, or, you know, people standing in line. And it's easier for the constituent because they don't have to leave their couch or their job, for example, in order to stay compliant with whatever is being required of them. And I think that's really the mentality. It's like, 
I, I said this earlier with, with Streamline, but it's like the end user who's the constituent, everything should be easy. Interacting with government should be easy. Getting the services you need should be easy. Getting the things, you know, getting access to the programs that you're qualified, that should be easy. Um, and it's really not. And there's a bunch of challenges for the people administering those programs too. It's not a bunch of people sitting around twiddling their thumbs. They're doing their best, but the systems are not really set up for that fluid integration and feedback cycle in the same way they are in the private sector. And so the most successful GovTech companies are those who are sort of bridging that usability and ease gap with usability and ease of administration. I think like just the, the common phrase I'm saying is just like removing friction from the process. Yeah, totally. Know? Right. And, and friction is created because something went wrong, right? That's what bureaucracy is. Something went wrong. So we put a rule in place so it couldn't <laughs> happen again. And then something went wrong. We put a rule in place so it wouldn't happen again. And it just happened over and over and over again. And it just means that for our most vulnerable populations, getting services is really hard. It's not always in a the language they speak. It's often in person. It's often in, on paper. I mean, that is such a, a failure of the core value of our government. And the people who work there know it, right? It's not, this is not um, our public servants trying to withhold. This is just, we are lacking the tool chest to a more evolved economy and a more evolved constituency. Right. Well, I think what you guys are doing, of course, it's in the name, Streamline, right? It's, it's is removing a lot of friction in this process. Um, now, uh, toward, more toward like collaborations now, like it's just like collaboration as as a, as a, a de-risk factor, collaboration as a growth mechanism, whether you're you're entering into a community to, to, to uh, continue to get more connections, leads, things like that. Where have you seen collaboration uh, be used in Streamline? Yeah, and we're really starting to explore that now with other private sector partners, but internally, so much of what has been built has been built because of direct feedback from districts, um, really responding to needs, really trying to help them stay ahead of a regulatory curve, um, solving things for them, um, by them, I think is a very core part of what Streamline's building. I think the GovTech ecosystem in general requires a ton of collaboration to be successful because it's very hard, again, without building these huge custom systems to solve for every piece of the puzzle. And so I think the more that GovTech companies can collaborate with each other, the more effective the service delivery is. This person handles payments. This person ha handles digitizing the paper. This person handles, as we do, sort of remediating non-compliant PDFs. This person handles X, Y, Z. And then you've got this ecosystem of tools that are cross-collaborating and integrated and not competing. And, and some of that is on GovTech's, you know, on, on the entrepreneur's shoulders and finding people who are of the same mind. Um, and part of that is our RFPs, our, the government RFPs are often drafted with those large customized systems in mind. And it can be very hard to piecemeal them together. Government wants to buy things, buy things once, right? They don't want to have to go to an HR person and a payroll person and a posting person and blah, 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 because it can be really hard to navigate the intersectionality of those. And so the more that these, these GovTech companies can be getting together ahead of time and creating sort of an incubated product that contains all of those services, the more likely they are to win contracts. 
um, as compared to those who are sort of creating large custom solutions who can integrate any problem because they're starting from ground, you know, from, from zero. It, I, that's really interesting insights, um, you know, certainly from your perspective in this industry. And I think certainly it's something that might be really helpful for anyone listening to this to, you know, life is a remix, right? They're going to hear this thing and they're going to apply it to their own industry and, and then go from there. But, um, you know, the last topic I'd love to maybe go into Rachel is, uh, it's more about just like leadership. Like, what is it going to take to, to actually grow this business now back on maybe more of an operational side now at streamline, mm -hmm. like what's been your experience, um, from a leadership perspective of, of how we're going to grow this thing. Yeah. Maybe of, of, uh, communicate more with, um, I guess your team, your unit, um, and what's the leadership like that's maybe different in this industry as opposed to your, your last one? So um, I would say a lot of the models of cross-collaboration that I'm bringing in from a portfolio model of having a lot of different companies that solve individual things is the same way that I'm really trying to lead this company and the teams. Um, and lucky me, they were already doing a lot of that before I got here. So I get to take full credit for something that basically already existed. Um, but it's, it, it's such, it's a team that really builds off of each other. There's no competition. There's no sense of a finite pie. Everyone is really trying to keep their eyes on the horizon and row the same direction. And sure, of course, people step on toes this person didn't implement this quite the same way. And so it's created a little bit more work. Like, you know, there's always the dynamics of a company, but it's been a real joy for me and, and sort of a surprise, honestly, because I came in not fully knowing what to expect, um, how collaborative this group of people are and, and how much better the company is for it. So, you know, my job is mostly to get out of their way and let them keep building the things that they should be building. I think that, there are um, experiences that I bring to bear after having seen truly hundreds of companies um, over, over my previous career of best practices and, and pitfalls. And I think with any early stage companies, there's a learning curve and there's understanding who's doing what because people are wearing a bunch of hats and it's understanding what, what um, sort of force ranking you have to do of opportunities because in some ways the opportunities are endless. Um, you could take it a variety of ways. And so really taking the time to sit with the team, understand what they're seeing in their roles, because they're having different conversations than, you know, anyone else, trying to really integrate those ideas and then say, okay, you know, what's our, what's our home run play? What's our double play? What's our singles play? Hmm. Um, and how do we all sort of keep the home run play in mind? while also working on our doubles and uh, doubles and singles so that the company's, you know, moving forward gradually. I think that's the art and um, this is the right team to be doing it. I always like to uh, pick our guest brain in terms of, Hey, if you were the interviewer, you know, what would be one question you would ask the CEOs maybe listening to this podcast? Like just thinking about like, what, what's the first question that would come to your mind? <sighs> what's the thing what's the least expected thing in your job hmm. when you when you started a company or when you took a job or when you decided on a partnership like what did you expect and what's different than that because i think it can be really helpful in having people have similar experiences to you um sort of map the trees 
or whatever, math the ditches for you actually is what it is. Like what, what was totally unexpected? Yeah. No, interesting. Well, I, anyway, just, just curious to kind of see like what, what, uh, what questions our guests have as well, especially for any CEOs now, uh, where can people get uh, a hold of you, Rachel, where can they learn uh, more about uh, Streamline? Yeah, so for those um, interested in exploring potential collaborations with our special district customers, um, check out our website, getstreamline.com, and feel free to reach out to me. It's Rachel, my name, R-A-C-H-E-L, at getstreamline.com. Um, and always really happy to be talking to early stage GovTech companies, too. I do a lot of investing and advising um, as part of my desire, long-term desire to create this GovTech ecosystem. So feel free to reach out anytime if I can be helpful in crafting a narrative or exploring what it's like to raise money or, you know, make some hard decisions or partnership um, ideas. Always happy to be a sounding board. And as much as I can help the ecosystem, I think that's what helps our government. Amazing. Well, well Rachel, uh, the last question we ask everyone that comes on this show is uh, the one we want to end with, and that is, what is your definition? of a real leader? I have been blown away by the leaders I've gotten to work with here and the opportunity for really honest conversations that change behaviors. And I think a real leader is someone who has a strong idea loosely held um, and is open to growing and different perspectives and changing their course of action based on on real-time insights i love that Uh, for rachel stern i'm kevin edwards asking you to go out there be open-minded willing to change and always keep it real thanks rachel thanks kevin Hey, Real Leaders, thanks again for listening to this amazing episode. And if you're someone like me who goes all the way to the end just to make sure I can extract as much information, education, and inspiration out of every single interview, might I suggest you check out our magazine. If you go online to realleaders.com today, you're going to get the first 30 days for free where you're going to be able to access all of our magazines courses, and live events from some of the top thought leaders around the world. All you have to do is go online to realleaders.com and click the subscribe button in the top right corner to get your free 30-day trial right now. Again, that's real-leaders.com. Thanks again for being a real leader and always keep it real.